Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, we've got uh, a very big show today with Art Taylor, uh, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance on our show. We've wanted him uh, on the show for quite some time, so this is a treat not only for me, but for all of our listeners to have the opportunity to learn uh, from one of the top experts here uh, in uh, our industry. Um, As our our, uh, announcer um, shared with you, you can call in if you wish, but you can also email me at tedhart at tedhart.com with any questions that you may have for our page two uh, experts. And as always, we start the show with page one news. And with us here on page one is Jeff Stranger, who is the Education Resources Manager over at CFRE International. Uh, and Jeff, uh, in, in the holiday spirit, I understand that CFRE has got a free gift for our uh, listeners here. How do they get that free gift? Absolutely. Uh, you know, for a long time, people have been asking us for flashcards and uh, something updated, a, a tool to study with. So if you sign up for our practice exam, it's a monthly subscription, you will get free the flashcards. They're digital flashcards. You can do, there's a set of about 80, and you can do the, the general flashcards, or you can even segment them, segment them out by the knowledge domains on the exam. Well, that's, that's great. Um, what um, is the amount of time that someone should begin uh, registering for and beginning uh, the practice exam uh, before they uh, sit or plan to sit for the exam? Well, it really depends on how, how prepared you feel you are going into this. But I would say somewhere between 30 to 90 days out, it would be a great idea 
to subscribe to the practice exam, uh, test yourself, see where you're at, and then that will give you the uh, sense of what you need to focus on over those next 30 to 90 days. And you can really tailor your, your study and your preparation based on what the practice exam tells you. And the great thing about the subscription uh, part of the practice exam is that you can take it over and over and over again uh, during those 30 or 90 days that you're subscribed. So that will give you even more confidence in going into the exam because I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, as, as uh, adults, we get out of the habit of taking exams. And even though we may know the content really well, you know, there is a, you know, a bit of a skill. Uh, and like anything else, like going to the gym, you've got to work out that skill. Uh, and this, uh, this practice exam is a great way uh, to do that. As you know, um, and as our listeners know, um, the nonprofit coach is a big fan of uh, standing for the CFRE exam as an indication of your commitment to our profession. What other updates do you have, uh, Jeff, from CFRE International? Sure. If you want to take the, uh, for the exam of the first window of 2019, the uh, deadline, the application deadline is January 15th, so keep that in mind. And then if you are thinking about getting your CFRE sometime in 2019, that's on your, uh, your uh, resolutions for 2019 for, for New Year's, uh, write this down, January 15th, that's our next webinar, and it is titled the CFRE Application Process Step-by-Step. Step. It will walk you through every, every part of the application process, answer your questions, and it's a great way for you to get familiar and comfortable with what you're going to need to do uh, to prepare for the CFRE. Well, that's got to be very helpful, again, to a lot of folks who, you know, find the process daunting, even if, you know, they really know their stuff and they're probably going to pass. Um, but, you know, how do you get yourself organized, uh, especially when you're uh, just coming off from the holidays, which is, you know, our busiest time of giving. So that, that's, uh, I would think, going to be a very popular webinar. Yeah, I think the seats for that are going to fill up pretty quick. So if you go to the website, CFRE.org, uh, you can sign up. Any uh, more updates uh, for us uh, before we head on over to our page two expert for today? Uh, I think that's it. Just keep those two dates in mind, January 15th, both the webinar and the deadline uh, for the uh, application first window. Jeff, thanks so much again for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. It's now time for page two. Art Taylor is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance. You can find them online at give.org. As head of the alliance, he oversees all aspects of the organization's work, which includes setting standards for soliciting organizations, evaluating charities in relationship to these standards, publishing the Wise Giving Guide, assisting local Better Business Bureau charity review programs, promoting charity accountability, and providing a variety of materials on informed giving to individuals, in institutions, and business donors, and also to the government. Since he began in this position, the Alliance has increased the number of reports 
from 250 to well over 1,400 of the nation's most asked about and nationally soliciting charities. In addition, under Mr. Taylor's lead, the organization introduced the accredited charity seal, a symbol of trustworthiness used by national and local charities that adhere to the holistic Better Business Bureau standards for charity accountability. And welcome here, Art Taylor, to the Nonprofit Coach. Well, thank you, Ted. It's an honor to be on the show, and uh, I look forward to uh, this hour that we have together. Yeah, I'm so excited, and I, um, I'm so pleased that we wanted to have you as a guest on this show for uh, for some time because of the, the pivotal role that I think uh, the Wise Giving Alliance uh, serves uh, in our uh, community, and I think um, no more relevant than uh, today um, because the the in interest in accountability and transparency and collaboration um, are really, you know, they're buzzwords for a lot of people, but they're uh, the central focus of everything that happens at the Wise Giving Alliance. And you've really been a true leader in helping uh, coalesce uh, those coalitions to come together to help us understand and, and to set standards that are, you know, not only important but also easy to understand for organizations that really want to set themselves above and apart. So let's start off in your own words. Uh, please help my listeners understand why is the Wise Giving Alliance important to nonprofit executives um, and uh, to nonprofit fundraisers? Well, I think there are two reasons. Uh, first of all, um, our sector is very dependent on public trust and uh, people who give to organizations do so because they trust people involved and the organizations are established in such a way that they will be able to accomplish something and that they will use the resources provided uh, in a way that will accomplish something. And uh, this is very much a trust relationship. Uh, most people never discover whether an organization has actually delivered on their promise unlike a business transaction. When you buy a product, you know if the product works or not. Um, and you can complain or you can um, ask for your money back. But in a case of charity, we sort of give usually to support some third party or some third mission that we don't actually engage in ourselves and don't know really um, the extent of the success that's um, uh, going to uh, occur with that particular uh, enterprise. And so we have to depend on um, the trustworthiness of those organizations. So that's one reason. I think the second reason, Ted, is that um, uh, organizations want to know what donors require of them. They want to know if they are meeting the expectations of donors and whether they are delivering in a way that people uh, expect them to, because they know if they are, they have a better chance of getting the resources they need to, to succeed. So um, I think those are the two primary reasons. Uh, people um, want to be able to trust and they want to know how and, and what's required. And, and then uh, I think charities also want to know what they need to do in order to demonstrate trustworthiness. Let's, um, let's focus on uh, the latter um, as our, our audience are coming into the holiday season. Uh, they certainly want to succeed, need to succeed, 
And as you said, um, you know, that much of that success is going to be built on the trust that you um, have or don't have uh, with the donor community. So what are some of the, the uh, steps or advice uh, that the Wise Giving Alliance would give uh, to our audience today on what they can do right now and as we go into the holiday season to build on that trust and to draw donors to them using the principles of the Wise Giving Alliance? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, uh, organizations and individuals should understand what the standards for charity accountability are all about. Uh, they should know that there are these 20 metrics that we use that look into different aspects of an organization's operation. And in the end, um, we believe they will give us a good indication of whether a group is trustworthy. So um, the standards cover things like how well an organization's board operates and how well it's governed. Um, they cover the um, way and quality of their financial operations, where they use their funds. Um, they cover their fundraising practices to make sure that the information they're putting out is, um, is acceptable and it's not misleading or, um, or in any way um, – uh, using uh, the donors' uh, emotions uh, improperly to get them to give and enabling them to have enough information so that they can make good decisions. And then there are other areas, such as um, whether an organization is measuring the impact or effectiveness that they're having on their mission, and how are they dealing, too, with uh, cause-related marketing arrangements that they may have with corporations. Um, you know, we always hear about these relationships where you go to the store and, and someone is willing to uh, give you a discount on a product if you, if you um, um, buy the product and that discount will go to a charitable operation. Well, people need to know uh, certain things about that arrangement um, in order to know if it's, a, if it's one that they should participate in. So these are some of the areas that the standards look into, Ted, and I think that what we've seen over the years is that organizations who meet these standards are ones that we can pretty much rely on to, to do the kind of work that we would expect them to do. And, you know, um, we talk a lot about impact. You know, how does an organization have impact? Well, um, you know, in our sector, um, impact is not always easy to achieve and is certainly not always easy to measure, but we should always be trustworthy. Um, even when we set out to accomplish an important mission, uh, many times uh, we don't fail. Uh, many times we fail, excuse me. And um, that failure, though, um, is not an indication that people aren't working as hard as they can and even as smart as they can to achieve the goal. But it's an indication that the work they're trying to do is difficult, and it's hard to to get the the uh, the goal get to the goals that they're establishing. But we can always be trustworthy. We can always tell the truth. We can always operate in a way that's transparent and above board. And that's what we're really here to to help organizations do and and help own to help donors understand um, um, that this is going on when it is. Well, I, and I really appreciate you uh, drawing attention uh, to uh, the, the 20 standards. I do want to uh, come back to that. But, you know, I, one of the things that we've discussed on this 
this show many times is this issue of trust. Um, and of course, all charities want to be trustworthy. They want to earn their donors' trust because they, they want to earn their donors' um, support. And as you've pointed out, you know, those, uh, those two principles are absolutely connected and uh, the success in one will bring more success uh, in the other. Um, specifically, what I wanted to um, ask you to sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, think about and, and help us think about is I, I've often said that, you know, uh, there are, are very few, unfortunately there are some, I think that there are very few charities out there, you know, who intentionally um, deceive their, their donors or, or intentionally do things um, that can um, destroy or tear down that trust. But oftentimes it's because they don't know what the standards are. They don't know the best practices. And that's one of the, the, the really incredible values that um, the Wise Giving Alliance brings to our industry is because even for those, you know, who are new or those that haven't really thought about the standards, as you get to know the standards, they will help you succeed because they will uh, help you know, you know, where those guideposts are um, to help you build that trust. Can you just sort of reflect on, on that? Sure. Uh, we hear often from charitable organizations who tell us, when we started out, we weren't able to meet these standards. But as we worked uh, and made changes to our organization, we discovered that we could meet them, and it's made our organization better. Um, and we hear um, from donors who say that they wouldn't even support an organization that, that didn't meet the standards. So we know there's great value in those um, in those standards. And, um, you know, we should talk maybe a minute, Ted, about just how these standards were developed because um, it was a very rich and intensive process used to develop the 20 standards for charity accountability. Uh, we used experts in the field, including foundation leaders, um, charity leaders. We talked with uh, former IRS officials um, state charity regulators. Um, we went to business leaders um, and uh, tax lawyers and uh, accountants, others who have um, their hands in the nonprofit sphere. And we formed a committee to, to have them help us draft and determine what the standards should be. We also commissioned a major survey of donor expectations that we could understand what donors required of charities. And we put all this together and um, came up with a draft of the standards and released it to the public for comment um, for about a year. And after that time, we were able to make revisions to the standards and um, finally um, were able to release them. So it was a very um, broad and intense process that we used to to come up with these standards. And um, we think, therefore, that they truly are the standards um, that the sector um, mm -hmm. will point to when looking at um, ways to demonstrate trustworthiness. And, you know, uh, as you, you're so right to mention, it's not often that um, organizations are looking to do wrong. You know, they're, they're working to achieve their mission, and maybe they're not aware of some things that uh, they should be doing. Um, 
And when they are, they're usually wanting to to make those corrections and make those adjustments, which is great. And um, they will be rewarded, we believe, um, when they do. Well, and we um, we believe that they should be, and that's why I do want to um, go through the, the standards so that our listeners can really understand sort of the richness, but also the direction um, that's provided uh, in uh, in the uh, the 20 standards for charities. But before we do that, I, I want to just ask you to uh, give us a little bit of information about another very important initiative I think that uh, the Wise Giving Alliance has, and that is the Advancing Collaboration Pledge. Um, can you help us understand what that is and uh, how our listeners might um, be able to become part of that? Sure. Um, well, um, when we were doing some of our own strategic planning, Ted, we realized that um, we have a great opportunity to assist charitable organizations beyond the work that we do with our uh, accreditation process. And that is because we collect quite a bit of information from organizations and um, they also trust us and um, tend to rely on uh, the insights that we're able to provide them as a result. Um, what we discovered is that um, many organizations struggle to uh, innovate and um, in a world in which we're seeing rapid change and the need to augment and supplement and come up with new programs, uh, that's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult when organizations are, are struggling to innovate, and mainly because they don't necessarily have the resources to do it. So you see many organizations that are doing great with their programs today, but they're also putting most of the money they have toward and the resources they have toward those programs. So how do they find the resources to, to innovate? We envisioned um, a world in which um, innovation occurred through collaboration. Uh, so if I have a little bit of what I need to create something new, and I work with several other entities, maybe together we could come up with a new uh, product or service that could make a difference difference to, to people who need help. Uh, one great example that I use often is to think of an animal um, rescue organization and a battered women's shelter. Ordinarily, you wouldn't think that those two entities would have a whole lot in common. But as it turns out, um, it's been reported through surveys that 60% of battered women will refuse to leave their batterer because they're worried about a pet at home. And so um, this organization called Red Rover out on the West Coast um, found this out and began working with uh, battered women's shelters, basically saying, we'll find homes for those pets while um, a woman gets the help she needs or a battered person gets the help that they need and you have a great collaboration here between two entities. Um, they created new value uh, while at the same time, you know, maintaining a strong uh, program. And I just thought, wow, how many possible relationships are there out there in our sector, given the millions of organizations that we have, the millions of programs 
that if people were more intentional about um, seeking these relationships out, we could, we could do so much more in the world. We could have so much more impact. And so we, we decided that we would um, use our platform, use our um, position in the sector to inspire or encourage organizations to collaborate. And so we created this way for organizations to be um, to pledge that they are willing to collaborate and for donors to also say that they're willing to uh, support organizations that will collaborate. And that became the collaboration pledge. But to go along with that, we also came up with nine important considerations. And um, these are, uh, I think, guide marks that help organizations that are really thinking about collaborating. And, of course, the first is to build trust. You can't really expect to work with anyone who doesn't want to, uh, who isn't demonstrating trustworthiness, right? It's hard to work with people you don't trust. The second is to have a vision. Uh, Without a vision for the future, it's hard to know um, who your right collaborators are. So you should think longer range than most organizations generally think so that you can have a vision and, and then identify the right partners. Um, You want to seek to assure the success of your collaborators and imagine a world in which um, not only do we think about how we could be successful, but we thought about the importance of our collaborators being successful. Because frankly, in a collaboration, if your collaborator isn't successful, then a project isn't going to be successful. So organizations have to think differently about their collaborators. Um, Taking stock, meaning examining what assets, strengths, and weaknesses do you have that you might bring to a collaboration that um, someone else might either um, benefit from or be able to strengthen. Also start small. Um, We believe that um, it's really important to take on small projects to see how things go, to enable you to build a relationship with a collaborator, and then grow from there. Then, of course, there's this notion of failing fast and building rigorous feedback loops. Failure is not fatal, um, but we should learn from our uh, mistakes and not assume that every activity that we enter into is going to be successful. But if we can learn, then we can improve. Um, Then seven is to take a portfolio approach. We have to do lots of these. It shouldn't just be one uh, event and the more of these we can do the better we get at them and the more likely we are going to find the next new great thing also consider non-traditional partners as i mentioned before um, it was great when an animal rescue organization was able to work with a battered women's shelter but think too about how a charity might work with a technology company or a bank might work with uh, a job training organization or um, how a venture capital fund might find a way to work with an organization that's in the arts field. I mean, we have to think differently about who our collaborators might be in order to come up with unique and innovative solutions. And then ninth is to keep your donors and funders apprised of your collaborations because many of them will want to support you if you're able to communicate what you're doing. So we came up with these nine considerations, Ted, and we've been interviewing organizations to see how they are able to institute these considerations in their collaborations. And we're going to be publishing those stories very soon. We're also creating on our website a way for organizations to be very intentional about the projects that they want to collaborate on. They'll be able to list those programs in our database. 
and we'll be able to push out their interest in collaborating in hopes of finding others that might want to collaborate on that particular um, concept or program. So, um, you know, that's the start of it. But we think this is really uh, important work. We've already been uh, acknowledged for this work by the American Society of Association Executives Foundation. Um, they gave us an innovation award for, um, for launching this, this work. And we're just going to take it as far as the sector will enable us to go. Well, I am uh, very impressed with the work as well. You certainly can count on the support of uh, the nonprofit coach and getting the word out about the Advancing Collaboration Pledge. We have uh, spoken of this uh, issue many times on this show that, uh, you know, I think we all of us in the sector would agree uh, that there are far too many charities that are far too similar. Uh, but then as soon as you mention um, any particular name, uh, of course, there you know, are donors and supporters for each and every charity, which uh, we're thrilled uh, to have. However, um, there is uh, a, a lot of reason for collaboration because there, there are a lot of charities that coming together, working together, they can do even greater things. They can learn from each other. They can share resources. And I think for any donor, um, the ability for organizations to become more effective and efficient through collaboration, um, that, again, goes right back to the heart and soul of the Wise Giving Alliance, which is uh, building trust and setting standards. Um, we're going to um, take a very quick um, uh, break uh, here, um, uh, Art, and uh, when we come back, I want to get into uh, the, the, uh, the 20 standards um, so that our listeners um, can uh, learn from you, the expert on these standards and how they can implement those to build more trust. And we'll be right back. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? And we all have, because we're busy, and because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded, and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Uh, get out your calendars and put a big red circle around December 18th. That is our annual K. Sprinkle Grace holiday show where she will be uh, providing you with her latest and greatest uh, best tips for uh, success in the new year. Uh, and uh, as we all know, that is one of the most popular shows each year here on The Nonprofit Coach. Um, I also want to remind everyone that next Tuesday is Giving Tuesday, uh, and here's a little reminder on why that's important. What if the entire world came together to give? Imagine what we could do 
From the smallest towns to the biggest cities, people across cultures, borders, and oceans unite on Giving Tuesday for one common purpose, to do good. In just six years, families, organizations, businesses, and neighbors have grown Giving Tuesday into a global movement. It's changing communities and inspiring action. And together, we're having a big impact. Last year alone, there were Giving Tuesday activities in nearly 100 countries. Through gifts of time, money, goods, and acts of kindness, millions of people joined together, taking pride in their communities, supporting the causes they believe in, and showing that anyone, anywhere, can make a difference. There are many ways to give, and countless reasons why. But every single act of generosity counts, and each means more when we give together. From our community to yours, we invite you to take part and create your own Giving Tuesday tradition. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with our Taylor, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance. Um, Art, before we uh, we went on the break, um, we had sort of teased our audience that we were going to uh, delve into the 20 standards of um, the uh, Wise Giving Alliance, um, and specifically for charities. And you start off with board oversight, a board of directors that provides adequate oversight of the charity's operations and its staff. What is the standard here? Because sometimes there can be sort of static uh, between um, the, the staff and the board. Um, what, where is that boundary? Whose job is it anyway? Well, the oversight has to be the responsibility of a volunteer board that is free of conflicts and it's independent um, so that the work of the staff can get legitimacy and um, that the public has a sense that uh, people who are both interested in the success of the organization but disinterested so much in the particular details can really oversee what's really happening in the organization. And they can be sort of a protectant for uh, the public. Um, this is really important in an organization and in how we do charity in the United States. So um, we think that um, one of the things, perhaps one of the key standards. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I think sorry. so ahead, too. One of the things that I often try to help um, uh, particularly nonprofit executives to understand is, you know, sort of the chicken and the egg. It is possible to have a nonprofit organization without a paid staff, but it is not possible to have a nonprofit organization without a board of directors. Um, so understanding uh, where that authority comes from. Um, in number two, board size, minimum of five voting members. Uh, why and what is the danger of having a board that's too big? Sure. Uh, a minimum of five, of course, protects from having the lack of, uh, of diverse thought uh, on the board. And five people 
could be the right number for some boards, um, but many will usually want more to make sure that they have that diverse thinking uh, about um, about the organization and its mission, and also that you have these individuals who can sort of cover the uh, broad spectrum of oversight required. Now, that doesn't mean that um, organizations can have boards that are too large, because they certainly can. Um, when you start to see boards where people aren't showing up or they aren't engaging um, or um, they seem to have difficulty getting quorums, then you're probably reaching a point at which you have too many members. So organizations need to keep that in mind too. Board meetings um, should be, have a minimum of three evenly spaced throughout uh, throughout the year. What what is the potential danger? And this is one of the things that we we've discussed on this show. Of you know, it, a lot of organizations have a tradition of monthly board meetings, um, which in and of itself I don't think is a problem. However, uh, two things that that often come to mind that that I've seen uh, far too many. Uh, boards fall into um, the, the trap of, and that is uh, that we meet because um, it's a tradition to meet, but there isn't actually any business to conduct, um, and it makes a board feel that they then need to become a committee of the whole, and, and, and instead of providing oversight and strategic direction, they then get into managing the organization. So what's, what's the wisdom of having a board um, meet in uh, fewer very powerful meetings than many sort of weak or, or just traditional uh, agenda meetings? Well, that's a great question, Ted. And from my perspective of having served on boards, and I still do, and also have having to report to a board, um, board meetings are major events for organizations. And um, having too many of them can put the staff at risk because you are spending lots of time preparing the board to have meaningful time together uh, providing oversight. And if you have a particularly small staff, or even if you have a large one, um, having, for instance, a monthly meeting can be very burdensome on a team. And what you're going to find potentially is that the organization isn't able to keep up with the needs of the board to meet that frequently. Um, and so the meetings aren't necessarily um, as, as um, meaningful as they could be. Um, yet if you had too few meetings, then there isn't oversight. So every organization is going to have to figure out what that right balance is. And I totally agree that, if you have lots of meetings, there's a tendency for the board to um, spill over into management of the organization. And when that happens, the organization, again, is at je in jeopardy because the, um, the board is supposed to provide oversight, not supposed to be doing the work if there's a staff to do the work. And um, who do we hold accountable if the board is actually doing the work of the organization? So uh, that is uh, one little point that I think boards that tend to meddle should probably take into account um, before they um, begin scheduling their meetings uh, out through the year. If they have meaningful things to talk about in 12 meetings and um, they are all oversight, policy, or strategy, 
then wonderful. But if you want to get into the actual work of the organization, uh, then I think that's a that's a challenge. Terrific. Board compensation, it says, uh, no more than 1% or 10%, whichever is greater directly or indirectly compensated people. And, of course, this is the, the issue, and I think when people read this, they may be confused by this because um, our tradition is to have voluntary, uncompensated uh, boards of directors. But sometimes there is um, a staff person, the chief executive officer, or other person uh, who is also serving on the board. Uh, and I really love the fact that, that you make a point of saying uh, in the standard that, okay, if the board feels that there's value um, in maybe one person or certainly no more than 10% of the board, they should not be in the role of board chair or treasurer. Yes, and that's a really important uh, Point you notice there. Um, the, chair, the chair of the board is really responsible for, for the work that the board does to provide oversight. And if the chair is being compensated, then who is essentially um, providing the oversight? They're, they're essentially putting themselves almost in a staff position. And um, they could be, in a sense, co-opted by the money that they get and um, we just don't want that. And even if they're not, there's this bad appearance that somehow that could occur. Um, and boards should be able to um, operate as a body and, and not as individuals, too, which is another important point. And you want there to be ease in transition of leadership among the board, that you're not having the same people in place. And if there's um, this compensation, there's more of a desire, I think, for some people to stay in that role even beyond their usefulness. So um, I think we have to keep that in mind. But the, the primary thing here is to avoid um, people being in roles where they're not able to provide adequate and independent oversight. Exactly. And that brings us to number five, which is uh, conflict of interest, no transaction in which any board or staff members have material conflicting interests with the charity resulting in any relationship or uh, business affiliation. And there are so many charities that really don't understand this, the reason to have decisions made and for uh, board and staff to be free of conflicts, and particularly for small organizations in small communities, this can be very difficult to be making arm's length uh, decisions and uh, transactions. Tell us a little bit more about um, why um, this is important. I think this is perhaps one of the biggest challenges for many organizations, um, particularly ones in small communities where there are um, limited resources for them to accomplish their work. You'll find sometimes that people will um, double as sort of a business person and a board member. And if you want to get, let's say, your printing done, then it's that company that is doing all the printing that may be serving also in your position as a director. And um, so you have to find ways to manage that. And what we, what we encourage is that if you can, avoid these altogether. Let's not have people who serve on the board who are also providing services or products to the organization. 
And if there are occasions when you feel you need to have that person on the board, then let's look at how material this relationship is. Let's look at whether or not this is a transaction that is going to be ongoing. Let's look at the amount of money involved, and let's also see if there are other ways of managing the relationship such that the comp is minimized and doesn't affect governance. So we, we will be looking into all of those things when we determine if an organization that has a conflict is actually in violation of the standard. Uh, number six and number seven, let's deal with those um, together. They're about measuring effectiveness, effectiveness policy um, for the board to uh, be uh, providing assessments um, and effectiveness report. Um, submitting to um, the organization's governing body for its approval, written reports. Why is this sort of reporting and assessing uh, part of the standard? Well, we, um, we, um, when we revised the standards back uh, some years ago, um, we created these two standards because there was a lot of talk about the importance of organizations being effective in achieving their mission. And um, one of the ways you know if you're effective is that you actually set goals and you measure it. Um, and so our choice at the time, Ted, was interesting. We could either ask the organization to send us these reports or they could actually just tell us through um, their board minutes that they actually did the report. And we chose the latter. We chose to um, tell organizations, look, we want you to do this effectiveness report. We want you to have these policies in place, too. We don't need to see how effective you are. That's your business. And the reason we did that, Ted, was that we wanted organizations to take a hard-nosed look at how they were doing. And we felt that if they shared the report with us, then it would just be a fluff piece, you know, showing us everything they did right, because they wouldn't want the world to know any dirty laundry, so to speak. But, um, the main thing here is that organizations have a policy of assessing their effectiveness once every couple of years and that they actually do the assessment. If they're doing that, then we feel that they're doing what they need to do to at least head down the road of effectiveness. And I think that's what really uh, people are hoping for because, as you know, um, many organizations simply haven't achieved all their goals, and maybe they shouldn't achieve their goals because the problems are hard. And um, it's going to take um, maybe more than they have to actually get there. But we continue to support them because we trust them. And we believe mm -hmm. that um, they're giving us hope that someday these problems could be solved. I and mean, if you look at a lot of health yep. organizations, right, we still have these diseases around. We've had them for, for hundreds of years maybe. But we're still supporting them, and for good reason, because we know that um, this is – if there is to be a solution, if there is to be a cure for some of these diseases, it's going to come from people who are working in a trusted way, who are working um, hard with good ideas to solve it. And the, the answer may not come tomorrow, but we believe that with uh, vigilance and hard work and good ideas that it will come at some point. So that's what we're trying to do with those. And, and what, I, support what I love those about your – Well, what but, I love about your approach here – is that you're you're not inviting a publicity stunt, um, but you're putting the 
the necessity for this kind of review by the board on the table um, and saying if you're going to be in accord with these standards, your board must be involved um, in this process. This is not a separate kind of activity. Moving on and keeping uh, account of the, uh, the clock here, um, I yep. want to also um, say I very much appreciate um, the number eight and uh, number nine that specifically say the program expenses, um, I, you know, whether or not it's 65% or not, I think there is, you know, always open debate in terms of, you know, what at least the, the right numbers should be about. But I think what, what I appreciate number eight and number nine saying, and number nine saying fundraising expenses should be no more than 35%. You know, I think those percentages, you know, lots and lots of people can debate those. But what I appreciate about what the Wise Giving Alliance is putting on the table there is that um, they're not uh, uh, you know, they're not encouraging charities to fall into the trap to say 100% of our money goes to uh, program because you know who's going to do the accounting. Right. Who's going to do the oversight? How, how about the good business activities of a nonprofit organization? It is not possible for 100% of the money for any well-run organization to go directly to those that you are providing service to if, in fact, you are going to have a professionally run, well-managed, and accounted organization. But, but nonetheless, you're, you're, again, providing those guideposts um, to help organizations that maybe don't know where to go or where to even start um, the evaluation, I think that's one of the, the benefits of, of this. Do you want to re reflect on no, no, the think, expenses? No, no, I think you really hit the nail on the head. I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And the only thing I would add to what you said is that um, there's this concept called the overhead myth that we were involved in creating with GuideStar and Charity Navigator, where we're saying to people, don't just rely on financial ratios. Look at what the organization is doing. Consider other areas. And, uh, Ted, what we found is that very few organizations will fail to meet our standards because of these financial ratios, but far more miss our standards because of one of the other areas. So uh, if you're just focusing on financial ratios, you're going to miss a lot. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Now, you then go into um, some other very important uh, standards, number 11, 12, and 13, which are, you know, talking about the audit, which I think, again, is just a very realistic approach to say, um, you know, if the, the total income is less than $250,000, does it make sense to require that there is an expensive independent audit? However, um, if, if it's more than that, then a certified public accountant um, is uh, sufficient in meeting the standards. And, and if it exceeds $500,000, then there should be an independent audit. I, I just, I like the fact that, you know, sort of a tiered structure that lives in reality um, in terms of, you know, what is possible to uh, provide good financial oversight um, when there's just not a lot of money on the table. Um, and then, of course, the need for detailed Absolutely. expense breakdown. How can, how can you plan if you don't know what the breakdown is? Um, accurate expense reporting, you know, if, if that, that goes right to um, the heart of trust is that if, if, you're, if you're not able to have accurate accounting uh, of how the money is spent, then you, your organization is um, uh, not, um, uh, not going to be able to be uh, successful. And then the last part of that, section number 14, um, is that there must be a board-approved budget, and that must happen on an annual basis. So I know we're moving a little fast here because I'm watching the, no, the no, clock. No, no, that's good. I'll but only, only add those, those. Yeah. yeah. 
those standards are meat and potatoes of financial management. So I, I would just add that. You, you hit the nail on the head there, too. They're meat and potatoes of financial management. And then the next section, so, 15, 16, yeah. 17, 18, um, those four all go to disclosure and um, annual reporting accuracy. It's really sort of, you know, those four sort of make up the, the, the honesty quotient, don't they, uh, in terms yep. of Absolutely. being transparent, in terms of how donor privacy will be handled, uh, making sure that um, you're being accurate in your information and not trying to deceive donors. Um, if the money isn't going to go for a specific project, don't tell them it's going to go for a specific project. But if you do say it's going to go for a specific project, make sure you're appropriately accounting for and can share with donors how you succeeded in that project. So 15, 16, 17, 18 sort of feel to me to be the sort of transparency and honesty quotient. Yep. And 19 and 20 really go to um, – disclosure also 19 deals with as i mentioned before cause marketing i won't go into that again and if there are complaints which we rarely get but sometimes there are complaints we want charities to respond to any complaints that that come to the table about them usually they're going to be about uh, getting a name off of a mailing list or something like that so yeah those are the 20 standards Ted, and um well, i think they're I doing the sector I, I, some good yeah, well, I think they are as well. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I hope you don't mind. I did want to reserve a little bit of time uh, to talk a little bit more about 19 cause marketing um, disclosures oh, sure, sure. because I think, you know, first of all, it's it's so great that you have that in there because I think it's just a big mystery for a lot of organizations, you know, and it, and it seems so great. Somebody's going to come and they're going to raise money for me in a way that, you know, I'm not going to sell the products or, you know, my name is going to get out there. But it, it's so problematic for charities in a way that they don't really – understand um, how that's happening. And part of it is the use of your image and, and your uh, goodwill with the community in selling a product and how careful charities need to be in aligning themselves with a the product that it, it really should not be about the money um, to begin with. Of course, you know, we all need money and, and this seems like an easy way to go. But, but I have to tell you, you know, where is it for a small nonprofit? I mean, certainly there are good examples of very large national brands being able to uh, raise significant money in cause of marketing. Um, but very rarely does this generate the kind of money that would move the needle or be significant on the budget of even a small organization. No, very well said, and uh, I think organizations are trying to do more of this, um, but generally they can be taken advantage of. And we hear uh, from charities from time to time who say, thank you for this standard because we were able to tell a business that they have to make certain disclosures. And the companies have said, well, we really don't want to disclose that it's such a little amount that we're actually getting. <laughs> so it, it becomes very helpful to organizations you know, to, to actually get what they're worth in these relationships. Um, and well, it protects, I, you know, I you know, often, the consumers as well. I often remind uh, charities, you know, that you know, one way to make to make a decision and to know if if you you feel in your gut it's the right decision to make is if all of the details of the decision you just made were printed on the front page of your local newspaper tomorrow morning, would you still make the decision? And and I think you know exactly. when it comes to this cause. 
marketing disclosure, you know, uh, if you don't want to tell people how small the percentage is that you're going to make on each product, then why would you want to have your name associated um, with that campaign? And, and, and again, going back to if your donor knew everything, it was on the front page of the local newspaper, would you still make the decision? It's a little hard to think that you're going to make a bad decision if you, uh, if you use that sort of rule of thought. Absolutely. So, Ted, there, there so are a couple of things 20. I'd like to just share with your, your viewers in the last couple minutes, if I could. First, um, yeah, we, just, um, we just released something called the Give.org Donor Trust Report, and it's an in-depth look into the state of public trust in the charitable sector. And some interesting findings from that study of a survey of about 2,100 individuals, um, you, wouldn't, you would be surprised to know that while 73% of the population believes it's important to trust a charity before giving, only 19% say they highly trust charities. And 10% are optimistic about the sector becoming more trustworthy over time. So we've got some work to do. And I would, this, this study is, is full of great information. I would commend it to anyone who who wants to see it in our sector. It's called the Give.org Donor Trust Report, and you can get it on our website. You can download it for free. The second one I wanted to point out for charities is that we've been working with an organization called WorkXO to produce a culture survey where you can um, give this uh, survey to your employees, and they will give you a sense of whether your culture is traditionalist, contemporary, or futurist. And it breaks down um, some really important um, attributes, such as how agile is your organization? Is it collaborative? Is it focused on growth? Is it high on inclusion? Is it innovative? Um, is it solutions approach? How is it using technology and is it trans? Um, we're offering organizations an opportunity to take this survey and not only get the results for your organization, but also be able to compare how you're doing with other organizations in the sector. So um, reach out to us also about that. I hope that um, we can get many organizations to, to take that survey because, as you know, um, Ted, strategy is one thing, but if you don't have a culture in place that will, will help you reach the strategy, then you're going to have problems. So. Um, I wanted to make sure that people were aware that this opportunity was out there. Well, we can't thank you enough for drawing our attention to that. In the last uh, minute or so of the, the show, um, I wanted to ask you to make sure that our listeners know how they can reach you, how they can uh, reach and connect sure. with uh, the Wise Giving Alliance. Well, wonderful. Uh, first of all, I hope you'll follow me on Twitter. I am H underscore Art underscore Taylor. Uh, and, um, of course, um, I'm available to anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me. And um, our website is give.org, and my email address is ataylor at give.org, ataylor at give.org. So please reach out to me. Um, I love meeting new people and reconnecting with old friends like you, Ted. And I hope that um, we've been able to provide you with some information that has been helpful to your organization. And if not, then uh, let us know what your needs are, and we'll, we'll see if we can't come up with something that can be helpful to you. That's why we're here.
Art, you have been so informative. The uh, Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance is such a leader in the sector. Please, everyone, go to give.org, learn more about this, become more transparent, raise more do uh, money, and do good. Thank you for being my guest here today on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.